Hello and welcome to the latest podcast from TI Insights. I'm your host, Kirsty Adams, editor of the weekly logistics briefing. As some of you probably know, TI Insights is the place to go for research and data for the global supply chain sector. We're a team of researchers and analysts who have been advising supply chain strategists for over 15 years. The main purpose of this podcast is to share with you, the listener, some of our key findings from our research and reports. We want to bring you into the TI Insights team. Welcome. Everything we do from our reports, research papers, our free white papers, and our data platform, GSCI, can be reached via ti-insight.com. In this episode, you'll hear from TI Insights founder, Professor John Manners-Bell, and TI Insights advisor, Ken Lyon. John and Ken are actually about to publish a new edition of a book that they co-authored called Logistics and Supply Chain Innovation. So we thought we'd focus on some of the key topics covered in that for this episode. But first, we're going to dive into TI's Contract Logistics Report 2022, which was written by researcher Nia Hudson. I think you'll really appreciate all the points that Nia shares, especially the ones around the operators like DHL and GXO, which are leading the contract logistics market. Okay, over to you, Nia. My name's Nia Hudson. I am a team leader for the Value Logistics team, and I've been at TI for just under a year. Nia, could you share some of the key findings from the contract logistics report, please? So I think one of the most important highlights that we noticed was from the market sizing data, which was that global contract logistics market grew by 8.7% in 2021. So it surpassed its pre-pandemic levels and all regions witnessed a growth as well, which was a very big change from 2020. However, in the coming years, it's expected to slow predominantly because of inflation, cost of living crisis, manufacturing levels. So it's looking like in 2022, it'll grow by about 7.1% a year on year. And then for the compound annual growth rate up to 2026, that's going to be about 4.9%. I don't think it should be overstated as something negative, but it is definitely looking like it is going to slow. So I think that was probably one of the main highlights that would jump out at me. And then also Asia Pacific remains the largest contract logistics market by region. And China is actually poised to overtake the US market value by 2026. So that was something else that really stood out when we were writing this. It was maybe something that was slightly expected. But yeah, I think that's a really important point. And then also DHL and GXO have led the global contract logistics market. So they've both managed to maintain leading positions in North America and Europe, which has helped them both top the list globally. And there is also in chapter three, we've got a really good section, which is looking at the warehousing, the state of the market, which is a very hot topic at the moment, especially with sort of labour costs and rent costs rising. And yes, the demand for warehousing is increasing and there are low vacancy rates just across the globe in all regions that you look at. And it's really been influenced by three major categories, which is supply chain trends, innovation and customer needs. And then also e-commerce obviously comes into this a lot. It's a very big sort of growth driver. So you mentioned how DHL and GXO have maintained their top spots in North America. Can you share a couple of other points that are featured in the report? Obviously, we don't want you to give it all away. SIVA jumped up four places in 2021 from eighth to fourth. And this is primarily because SIVA's parent company, CMA, CGM, bolstered the contract logistics operations with a three billion acquisition of Ingram Micro's Commerce and Life Cycle Services, which is towards the end of 21. 
And then on the opposite end of that, Hitachi transport systems dropped four places from fourth in 2020 to eighth in 2021 because of lower growth in the Japanese contract logistics market. So on a global level, those are the two that stand out the most in terms of changing revenues and changing positions. Nia, why is this content useful for supply chain strategists? I think it's probably important in general to have a good overview of the competitive landscape. It really paints a picture of who is doing well and who is maybe suffering and how these sort of home markets can definitely affect where these providers rank as well in the top tens. How often does this report come out? Yearly. It'll usually be around July, August. Okay, I am intrigued by the progress of multi-storey warehouses. What can you tell us about those? Multi-storey warehouses are essentially facilities which are built vertically with truck ramps and docks located on multiple floors. It's a good solution in the sense that it can make use of the limited land that's available, especially in those really expensive regions like London, like Paris, Madrid. And they're quite popular in Asia-Pacific especially. However, so we actually did an interview with Dirk Sosa from Prologis, which is unfortunately not in the report, but it is available as a free brief. Just to jump in here, all our reports, including the full contract logistics report, which Nia is discussing, and the Prologis brief, which Nia just mentioned, are all available at www.ti-insight.com. You can find the direct links to all the content that I mentioned in the show notes. Okay, I'm going to take you back to Nia and let her finish off her point about multi-storey warehouses and prologis. We spoke about this very in depth and the main conclusion was that it can be economically viable for specific markets and in situations where land prices are really high, so it would be economically beneficial to use these. And they're not yet widespread in Europe. I do think they might catch on just personally especially as rent prices don't really seem to be decreasing at all. They just keep going up. And with e-commerce as well being a really big driver, I think there's definitely room for potential growth in this sort of area of warehousing. And it is quite popular in America as well. I just think we're waiting for it to really take off in Europe at the moment. One of the big cons is that they're really expensive to create. Like I said before, they're only really viable in places where you'll be paying so much rent that it would be cheaper to create these warehouses. Otherwise, they are a really high expense, especially with building materials increasing as well. Is there a particular section of the report which you didn't write, which you really enjoyed reading? There's one really good section which was written by John Manisbell, who's the CEO of TI, which sort of gives like a high-level look at the impact that vertical sector trends have on logistics outputs. So you've got a sort of overview of vertical sectors, which are cyclical, which is highly sensitive to business cycle peaks and then defensive. So maybe only moderate correlations with business cycles. And then it looks at the benefits and disadvantages of having either a diversified or a specialist business strategy. I think that would be really useful for supply chain analysts like you brought up before anybody who works in that sort of area assess the pros and cons of being either a specialist or a diversified business. Okay, you've shared some really useful findings. Thank you. Can you tell our listeners what other information can be found in the report? We've got information regarding the forces that are shaping the future of warehousing. We've got market sizing, which looks at global and regional overviews of the market size and growth rates, which also includes overviews of vertical sectors, which are encouraging growth, such as consumer retail, pharmaceutical, automotive, obviously e-commerce is a really big thing in this as well. 
We've also got a high level look at the impact that vertical sector trends can have on logistics outputs. So the benefits and disadvantages of either having a diversified or a specialized business strategy. We've also got provider comparisons, looking at comparing the profit margins, geographic coverage, vertical sectors of those top providers, as well as then a look at the revenues, the top 10 biggest providers globally and regionally. And then finally, we've also got a chapter dedicated to profiling all these larger companies, LSPs predominantly. So looking at finances, strategies, and any vertical sectors that they will work in. Oh, that's fantastic. I love a flash list. What was your favourite part, Mia? I think my favourite part was probably the provider comparisons. I think it's really interesting to take a really deep dive and look at those specific contract logistics profit margins, the geographies that all these LSPs work in. Another quite interesting part of that was looking at the technology these LSPs adopt predominantly within warehouses. So 3D printing, drones, automation, all of that. We've got a really good sort of matrix looking at the difference sort of comparing and contrasting the technology that these LSPs adopt. So yeah, I think that was probably the most interesting chapters, I think, for me personally to work on. Thank you, Nia. So now we're going to catch up with TI Insights founder, John Manisbell, and advisor to TI, author, Ken Lyon. We're going to talk to them about logistics and supply chain innovation, which is what their book's about, and that's what it's called. What I took away from the interview that you're about to hear, or one of the main points, was how during the pandemic, individuals had more power to communicate than our own government would have had 40 years ago. Also, a point about how the infrastructure that's been pioneered by Amazon meant when we were locked down, we could kind of get on with normal life. Anyway, I'll let John and Ken talk to you in more detail about tech and innovation. My name is John Manners-Bell. I'm a chief executive of TI Insight and also the founder of the Foundation for Future Supply Chain. My name is Ken Lyon and I am the managing director of my company called Virtual Partners. The book's called Logistics and Supply Chain Innovation. It's the second edition. It updates a lot, obviously, of the content that went into the book from 2018, 2019, but it brings it bang up to date with everything that's happened in terms of COVID and, of course, all the developments in terms of digitalization and digitization of markets that we've seen. To start at the beginning, really what we look at is the process of innovation, process of disruption, and why the supply chain and logistics industry is so vulnerable. Many of the working practices in the transport industry haven't changed over the last few decades. There's still large parts of the world where documentation is hugely important and it won't change for another 10 years or so. So we really discuss why it's vulnerable to disruption what's happening in parts of the industry. We're talking about new technologies that are coming in, talking about democratization of technology, which is allowing the benefits technologies to be shared, not just the big corporates and who in the past have had the multi-million, even billion dollars worth of spend. This, these technologies now are being distributed around the industry. So even the smallest truck driver is able to access the digital platforms and participate in a very efficient way. And of course, this is bringing huge competitive forces into the industry and challenging some of the big incumbents. 
As well as that, there are big political issues which which are happening. Obviously, the tension between the US and China and trade tariffs and how that's changing many of the structures of the industry. Talking about the impact of Russia's invasion of Ukraine on the industry as well, and how new technologies are able to bring that sort of agility and flexibility to supply chains, which are really required in a world which is volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. Ken, John, so what are the major changes since 2018? I think firstly, you can't talk about anything in the logistics industry without mentioning COVID and the impact that's had in terms of both logistics and supply chain. And I think firstly, fundamentally, I think we need to point out that many governments' response to COVID was really facilitated by the developments that there have been in the logistics industry over the last 20 years, really. And really what I'm pointing towards is the impact that Amazon has had in really supercharging the e-retail sector. And because without Amazon, without the e-retailing, there would have been no stay-at-home policies. People wouldn't would have had to have gone out to buy buy goods. Amazon was really as a responsible for the ability for most people to stay at home and work from home, shield at home, as opposed to go out. So that was fairly fundamental in terms of the delivery of goods and and food to the home. Would you agree with that, Ken? Yeah, and in concert with that, because of the wide availability of high speed internet access, so being able to access this global communications network. Services provided by companies like Amazon and pretty much every other retailer and service provider just would not have been possible. So as technology has evolved, certainly over the past 20 odd years since the World Wide Web that operates across the Internet came into being, that's transformed how society communicates, how society connects and the various organizations that are necessary for a functioning society, that has enabled them to operate. So as John absolutely nails it in the sense that Amazon enabled some form of life to continue, as we understand it, it was the underpinning computer and communications infrastructure that allowed that to take place. And I think that's something we've been flagging up in terms of the democratization of technology as, as well, Ken, isn't it? Because as you pointed out, many occasions, people have such huge computing power in their pockets now and gives them accessibility to platforms, logistics platforms, any sort of platforms which they've never had before. And that's taken away the power from the big corporations, relocated that power at a sort of individual level. Yeah. If I go back to when I first started working in the industry, one of the jobs that Freight Folder I worked for at the time did was moving a giant oil rig from the UK to somewhere else in the world. And it was for a German company. It turned out they had a problem. This was a phenomenally expensive exercise to undertake at the time. And they had a problem, but they were unable to communicate as it was moving the people doing the move were constrained how they could communicate because it was going to a pretty remote part of the world. The fact that that wouldn't happen now because you just call someone up on their phone and have a video call and could actually show you with their phone what the problem was through the cameras on the phone. And it would cost nothing to do that. 
Whereas 40 years ago, that would have been impossible. The only, even governments would have struggled to acquire that capability. That shows how far things have gone. And this rate of change is accelerating. Yeah, absolutely. So that's fundamental. We've seen the impact of COVID on societies and economies. And of course, the other enormous impact which COVID had, especially in the US, was the amount of money which had been moved from governments to individuals as a way of of stimulating the economy at a time when many companies and parts of the sector, the, the economy was shut down. And of course, that had implications which nobody really considered at the time, which led to a huge spend by the US consumer, which then, of course, resulted in the, uh, the whiplash effect. And of course, the huge problems we saw with congestion at West Coast ports. It was less well reported in Europe, but there were still the same problems around Rotterdam and Antwerp and across the European transport network as well. But predominantly, it was really seen in, in the US. And I think that's led a lot of people to look at how did digitalization and how did the uh, sort of smart technologies mitigate some of those impacts. And uh, to some degree, they were able to better visibility and better efficiencies, which came about in in ports. In a lot of ways, though, it really showed how nascent some of these technologies were, because actually, in actual fact, the fundamental problems such as lack of shipping capacity, lack of port capacity, lack of road and um, rail capacity overwhelmed the industry and there was nothing that digitalization could do. One of the things that uh, we've been doing with TI over the past 10 years is trying to observe wide-angle view of the industry globally and how it operates, and commentated frequently and published through TI the point that the world's economy, certainly the industrialized economy, has been a tightly choreographed operation as the world moved from sell what we've made to make what we sell 20 odd years ago, build to order and then get as quickly as possible through to the customer. That resulted in supply chains that were phenomenally efficient, but had very little resiliency to shocks. And we've tried to highlight this previously. The pandemic has exposed how vulnerable they were. And companies often were quite complacent about the technology platforms they had and the processes they had in place to cope with shocks because we've been banging on about they need the ability to respond very rapidly, flexibility, all of these things. But the pandemic has exposed the fact that many companies completely underestimated how agile they needed to be and they'd invested heavily in information systems that, of course, had improved their ability to understand what's going on, but were completely incapable of change or rapid change or responding to rapid change. And we highlighted that in the first version of the book. And a lot of the things that we pointed out in there as to the kinds of things that are required when you have external shocks have come to pass. And obviously, given the state that the global economy is in, we don't take much pleasure from that. But it's a fact that the world is now understanding why they need supply chains that are resilient, responsive, adaptable, flexible, and therefore you require the technology platforms that underpin that 
to be able to support it. Which technology is most relevant right now? The stuff that I'm really interested in at the moment, sensor technology, the Internet of Things, control towers, which are related to visibility and the impact of federated trust mechanisms, also known as blockchain. And that's not to do with cryptocurrency. That's to do with federated trust. So you don't need a third party to guarantee trust. So for example, if you're buying something and I'm selling you something, the guarantee of me getting paid is that it will go through a bank with a federated trust mechanism. That may not necessarily be the case because the blockchain provides the trust that a bank does. For me, it's the impact which these technologies can have on economies and societies as well as a a corporate level. And some of these technologies are really transformative. And uh, Ken's mentioned a a few there, blockchain, IoT, and uh, sensor technology, which will really transform the way that companies work. But it also have an impact on societies and also in government policy. For example, let's talk about automation in warehousing. And this is one of the areas, I think, which more and more companies have realized, especially since COVID, that labor force, as well as being useful, inverted commas, is also a risk. And we saw throughout COVID that labor-intensive workforces were a huge risk in terms of the impact on businesses and supply chains. And so automation, whether that's automation in a port, or whether it's automation in the warehouse or automation on the factory floor, is really going to be important as we move ahead. And for it to be adopted, then we need, obviously, improvements in technologies. We need the cost of that technology to come down and we need wider spread adoption to make that happen. But of course, there are huge impacts that could have on societies, especially if you're talking in the next 10 or 15 years, for example, of driverless trucks, you are then potentially making millions of people worldwide unemployed. I suppose more relevant in the next two or three years will be the introduction of more and more robots in warehouses. Because of what's going on, particularly in the UK at the moment, but this is echoed around the world, there's a shortage of labour, particularly in key industry sectors. And everybody thinks, without irony, that you flick a switch and if you could automate all of this and use robots, then that shortage of labour could be addressed. And that's true. And although technology already exists and we already have dark warehouses that are fully automated and companies like Ocado and others are doing this already. The longer term implications of this should not mean that we don't do it, but there needs to be a sensible emphasis on the sensible conversation around what this means. It's a sort of a coming together of many of the technologies, the smartphone technology, the platforms which have developed And those have really coalesced to create an environment where direct-to-consumer really had two or three amazing years, largely, of course, because people were told to stay at home. And so from the delivery of food and groceries perspective, then it became very important. And we've seen a sort of huge surge in in popularity for direct-to-consumer services. Now, whether or not those remain as popular, I think we can probably all guess the answer for that, given that when there's a cost of living crisis, 
and people start cutting down on those on those particular services which were seen to, as nice to have now that people can go to shops themselves but at the same time as that it really did I think propel forward a, a lot of these companies. I think people were saying by about move the market on by about five years. So whether it can hold on to those gains or not is another question. There's a demographic split with that because people say under forty were very comfortable prior to the pandemic with ordering things online, even trivial things, and expecting rapid delivery. Certainly in the states, where if you ordered something. And you wanted delivery within two hours in, in a number of urban places. You could actually get that. There was a price to be paid, but they didn't care. That was fine. They needed it and they need it now. And, you know, that's a more of a cultural thing for younger generations than it is for older generations. Older generations that learned because of the pandemic that they could order stuff online and it could be delivered quickly and efficiently and all the rest of it. That was a revelation for them. And they thought, oh, this is great. But they also appreciate that it came at a price. Now, as the cost of living challenges occur on a global basis, not just in the UK, they're starting to look at their bills and say, well, I can live without that because I lived without that before. But there's a, the younger generations, there was no before for them. That was just the way things were. And they choose to say, I need it, I need it now. And yeah, that's just factored in. And so there'll be an element of it continues. Sadly, older people die off and younger people, more and more of them come into society. I think that's what's going to drive those kinds of trends. It's definitely more of a, I need it and I need it now kind of immediacy or an expectation, let's say. And a lot of the companies that have come into the industry over the past 15 years or so, maybe even less than that, they were set up just to do that. Now, they were set up to do that using venture funding. And because of what's happened to the world financially, that venture funding may not be as abundant as they hoped that could afford to fund a lot of the losses that these businesses have been making. But natural selection is going to weed those out, as it did in the first dot-com bubble that popped. But this expectation management only gets you so far. And it's informed by your prior experience. So I think that's what's going to drive a lot of these things, the acceptance of what's normal and what should be, as opposed to, I never used to have to do that, or I could get away with not doing that. So that all plays into this, I think. Ken's right. I think the financing point of perspective is very important. I think we're going to see a lot of capital dry up, or I think we're probably already seeing that. And that's going to have a big impact on a lot of these companies who aren't making money, have never made money, and whose strategy involves growth. And if it's not, if they're not able to grow, then they don't have the network benefits. They will fall victim to competitors who are better resourced, who can go on subsidizing markets, maybe subsidizing their drivers, subsidizing customers until the market consolidates. And we're already seeing that. And I think that will lead to two or three big players in certain markets establish a market dominance. And that's how the market will really develop. What does this mean for supply chain strategists? 
In terms of the on-demand sector, I think it's quite a separate part of the industry. I think there were some e-retailing companies have tried to add that on to the list of services which they're able to provide to their customers, obviously Amazon most notably. It's not unknown to place an order with Amazon in the morning and get it within the afternoon. And that's outside of urban areas as well. But for other companies who don't have the sort of deep pockets of Amazon and don't have the logistics expertise, I think they will probably start rowing back on the range of services that they're able to provide to their customers. And maybe next day delivery is going to be okay after all. Thank you, John and Ken. I look forward to talking to you both about supply chain tech and innovation again on future episodes. You can find links to all the reports and briefs mentioned in today's episode, as well as to John and Ken's book in the show notes. You'll also find the link to subscribe to all future episodes. Next episode, we'll be talking about global ocean freight rates and the dominance of the business to consumer channel in the global express and small parcels market. I'll see you then.